Hello and welcome to the Trinity News Podcast, Trinity Views. I'm Finn Purdy. We're going to jump right in today with a conversation about a COVID outbreak in college and an SU referendum. Today I'm joined by our assistant editor, Jack Kennedy. Hi, Finn. And our news editor, Shannon Connell. Hi, Finn. We're going to be talking about one of the stranger referenda in the SU's history, as well as a COVID outbreak in college. So we'll start with the coronavirus outbreak, which occurred in the Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute. So Shannon, how did this outbreak first come to our attention at Trinity News? Basically, we received a tip through an email, which was a screenshot of the email that was sent to students in TBSI. So since it was a screenshot and we weren't forwarded the actual email, we were very cautious as to whether this story was true or not. So that was how it first came to our attention. So obviously we had to check that before publishing anything on it. So we rang college communication to see could they confirm it. And when we did ring them, they didn't seem to know anything about it and said that they would call us back. Sure. And then, as you say, we reached out to college to try and get this confirmed. So how did they uh, respond? What comment did they offer for the article? Well, first, firstly, when I did call them, they didn't seem to know anything about it. So they said they'd call me back. And about 20 minutes later, I received a missed call and then I called them back and they said that they could neither confirm or deny uh, this story of cases in TBSI. And then, so that's how we first found out about it. But how did college then go on to communicate this to students eventually? It, it was an odd one, definitely, because they told us they would neither confirm or deny. But then later on in the day, I was driving home from work and I received a call from comms yet again saying that they would comment on this, but it would be later on in the day and they would let us know and they'd be in touch. So then a few hours pass and then we're into the evening and we receive an email from comms in college, say, which was forwarded an email which was sent to TBSI students. And that email just simply stated that there was five cases, that that lab um, in particular where the cases were would be closed. Um, So there was actually no comment directly from college bodies, but it was sent from the head of TBSI, Um, which which was odd because there was no communication like directly with the whole student body until they sent that to uh, college media. Sure, sure. So, Jack, um, we first had we can neither confirm nor deny from college, uh, which at least suggests a policy of not commenting on issues like this. Later on, we're promised a statement, then we're forwarded an email that was sent to students. Um, and then later on, uh, much later on, a couple of days later, it's sort of announced to students uh, through official channels through their uh, weekly COVID update. Jack, does this sort of confuse communication strategy from Trinity? I... I really think it does, Finn. Um, I also think the fact that that when Shannon initially reached out to uh, to college to ask them about the incident, um, the fact that the the spokesperson she was talking to didn't even know about it and had to sort of go look into the um, the background of the story definitely suggests that there's there's sort of communication problems that there's there's no clear strategy in place for uh, how to deal with these kinds of incidents within college. I also sure. think uh, I also think that. The, the fact that they initially said they would neither confirm nor deny seems to suggest they, they were sort of under the impression that this wouldn't become a big story, that this wouldn't be something that people cared about, um, which I think is is a misreading of the situation. Um, I, I think that these 
these outbreaks are the kind of thing that, that students want to know, especially if we're going to be spending more time on campus in the future. Um, and and sort of being under the impression that that story would just go away and, and not become a big issue and they could get away without commenting on it was uh, a misstep by college, I think. Okay, cool. So um, Jack mentioned there uh, the idea of spending more time on campus. So Shannon, this week, uh, the Minister for Further and Higher Education, Simon Harris, said that he hopes that next term, uh, so after Christmas, uh, colleges would increase on-campus activity. Um, Shannon, what is your sense of how serious either government or Trinity are about uh, bringing us back onto campus more? I think this is an odd one, and I think an important thing to consider here is that there's actually been no provisions put in place for this to actually happen. So the main point of this story is that when it came out, I think it was in the Irish Independent or the Irish Times, it said that he wants to increase on-campus activity for students to stop dropout rates. So an important thing here to note is that he doesn't want to increase, you know, on-campus activity because it's safe to do so. It's not for student well-being. It's because he wants to stop the dropout rate, which I think is an odd way to come at the issue because obviously a lot of students are suffering because they can't be on campus. So the fact that he wants to reduce it simply because, you know, students are dropping out because they can't handle with distance learning, I think was the wrong way to come at the issue, like, firstly. And also Trinity hasn't really you know, made any promises as to what next term is going to look like. There's been really no communication since the announcement of Level 5 when they said um, that not much will change for Trinity um, with, you know, blended learning for some subjects and then the vast majority online for others. So I don't think, I think this is probably Harris trying to provide a light at the end of the tunnel for students at the current moment. But like a lot of us don't know if Level 5 restrictions are going to be lifted on December 1st. So I think making promises for like two, three months in the future is just slightly unrealistic on behalf of government. I feel like forcing students into a situation where they have to be on campus probably isn't going to bode well because a lot of students do have accommodation that they're not using. A lot of students are living at home and can't, you know, they don't want to, you know, take transport for several hours a day on public transport and put themselves or their family at risk if they do have to travel. And I don't think without a set plan or, you know, any actual provisions put in place, I think this is quite an outlandish like claim for Harris to make that, you know, he wants students to be on campus next term and for, you know, normal college life to resume. I don't think that that is something that they're entirely serious about. I think it's more trying to provide hope for students at the end of this? Sure, because I mean, we are um, a couple of months now away from terms. So you could say that, um, you know, it's too early for those kinds of provisions. Uh, but when you take into account the fact that students uh, will have to be looking into potentially uh, organising accommodation or those kind of provisions, you know, early warning is really sort of the key here, isn't it? Oh, no, definitely. Students need to know, and that was something Harris did say, is that he wants to provide a certain concrete answer. He wants to provide certainty for students in the upcoming months. But this is a very uncertain situation. And we already had this situation in August when they said that, you know, half of our classes would be in person and half of them would be online. So loads of international students came over, they're in accommodation currently, and they isolated for two weeks, only before the start of term to start and for no classes to be on for a lot of these students. So I feel like while yes students do need certainty they do need if they they do need to know if they need accommodation they do need to know what next term is going to look like for them 
I feel like making these claims now is is probably not wise. And I think this by Harif was more because uh, earlier on, two weeks ago or a week ago, um, Maynooth and DCU announced that there will be no in-person lectures until the next academic year. And I think right. Harris acknowledged this in the article and said, you know, colleges shouldn't provide answers yet because we don't know what it's going to look like. And I think providing that concrete for those DCU and Maynooth students was a good move. So now students may, you know, may get different accommodation. They may be able to spend a lot more time at home. They may not have to commute. International students may make the decision to not, you know, go home for Christmas or and not have to isolate when they come back. So I feel like that kind of early provision being like, yes, it's not going to look like this because we can't guarantee it was good on behalf of Minix and DCU. But I feel like Harris saying that he wants an increase in on-campus activity when it might not happen is kind of providing a false hope to students about what that's going to look like in the future. Sure. So the sense that I'm getting is really just a lot of uncertainty. But uh, Jack, um, even with the sort of very few people on campus at the minute, we did obviously have this outbreak uh, last week. If we were to see an increase in people on campus, would these kind of uh, procedures that are put in place for outbreaks within particular buildings become part of our sort of normal life? I I think they would, Finn. Um, I, I think that if we did end up back on campus, um, outbreaks periodically happening within college um, is probably an inevitability. It's, it's probably something that, that would become um, sort of part of our uh, part of our daily life. And I do think that that if we do find ourselves back on campus in uh, in the new year, I think college is probably going to have to come up with a a more robust and more coherent strategy about this. Is like we were talking about earlier, the um, the approach to this has been quite haphazard. Has been um, uh, has been quite uncoordinated from college, and, um, and and that would absolutely need to change if large numbers of students were uh, were to return to campus. Sure. So what we saw uh, this time round was one lab in uh, the TBSI building closed down uh, for cleaning. Um, how practical would this sort of method of small closures uh, for sort of a week at a time be for suppressing a larger outbreak on campus, given the way that people sort of move around and interact on campus? Yeah, I, I don't think it would be that practical insofar as, yes, uh, sort of a lab um, in the case of the, in this case, it was mostly researchers in TBSI who, who contracted the infection um, is certainly the kind of the place they would be spending the most time and the place where they would be interacting with most people. But I think that that's probably not true in the majority of cases. Uh, um, I think that most people, like you say, do move around campus a lot. Uh, and it's less about closing down an individual lab. And it's it's more about trying to keep track of all the different people they may have interacted with. And on a normal day in campus, um, just sort of walking between classes and stopping to, to chat to people who you know, and you know, uh, sitting outside the arts block, all, all the things that people do in a normal day, um, I think you're suddenly looking at like a very huge number of, con- of contacts for just an individual person who may have been caught up in an outbreak. Uh, and I, I think that kind of thing could, uh, could spiral very quickly. And I don't think that just closing one facility in one part of campus is practical, not least because even when you do that, the campus is, is a very small place and, and sort of the one lab in TBSI is not that far away from the rest of TBSI and TBSI is not that far away from Goldsmith and, uh, and, and all these places are really interconnected. 
Sure, sure. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on and talk about uh, an SU referendum that was held last week, uh, the results of which we got on Friday evening. Uh, so the referendum was on a r- whole raft of changes to the Trinity College Dublin Students' Union constitution. Um, and the referendum did pass. Uh, there was about uh, just over 500 votes in favour and 100 votes against. Uh, and as I say, it was a whole raft of changes, over 70 changes to the TCDSU constitution. So Shannon, could you just sort of help us out here by maybe summarising what some of those changes are and maybe pick out a key a few of the key ones. Yeah, of course. So this very much was marketed as a cleaning up of the constitution and fixing and there typos and contradictions and errors that are in that are in that con- constitution. But there were other changes being made to it under the proposed referendum, which is now passed. So I suppose mainly the key one would be that the role of officer for students with disabilities is now specified that a student running for this role or a student who has this role must be a student with a disability themselves. And this is quite a key one because it was it was really interesting to see looking back in the constitution that it was the only specified officer that this wasn't a requirement for. So for like the LGBT officer or the minority officer, it was required that you be part of that group. Whereas with for the officer with for the officer for students with disabilities, that wasn't always the case. Now it is. So that is quite a key change that that wasn't there. So then there was also, you know, a few like, a few, like error changes. So like all the like referring to TSM was being changed to TGH because, you know, TSM is now finished. It's moved to joint honours. So that that there was loads of just like cleaning bits there. There was um, quite a change to the oversight commission as well. So a key change there was that all members now are going to be allowed, all members of the OC will be allowed to speak at council as opposed to just the secretary. And then the OC will also be increased to four people instead of two. And then under the proposed amendments, the union forums and vote in council is going to be removed. So the union forum is generally not a decision-making body in college anyway. Um, except it provides annual approval for the University Times budget. And then also uh, in relation to the union form, um, they'll only be meeting with TCD uh, SU officers now as needed, as opposed to the current requirement, or I suppose the last requirement that they meet weekly. Um, and then I suppose the other key change just in general, and um, there was, as you said, 70 changes, so there is a lot to go through. But um, the other key change, I would say, is that uh, in motions of impeachment, they will now take place under a secret ballot um, after the vote was passed, whereas uh, all motions previously proposed to council were done uh, by a non-secret ballot by default. Okay, thanks very much, Shannon. Um, So, Jack, as we've just heard, there are uh, lots of changes, some of them uh, not very substantial, some of them perhaps a bit more substantial. do you think it could be argued that uh, any of the changes were uh, significant enough that sort of lumping them all together for, you know, one up-down vote uh, was unfair to voters? I think I think it could, Finn. Um, I think that sort of any individual one of the was it seventy or so changes that were made to the constitution were probably quite small. But I think I think some of the the sort of the areas where change was being made were 
probably significant enough to to warrant splitting it in, in, into several referendums. I, I think the the Oversight Commission, like Shannon was just talking about, has had its role in many ways significantly changed in that it's now double the size it was. Uh, members of the Oversight Commission are now allowed to speak at council to get sort of more personally involved with the day-to-day running of the uh, uh, of council as opposed to being a, a sort of um, distant, uh, uh, non, non-intervention non-interventionist kind of body. Um, and, and I think that, 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 for instance, that's the kind of thing that, that might warrant a certain amount of discussion. I think adding, for instance, a procedural motion to, to censure uh, to, to censure people or, or groups at council is probably quite a, quite a significant change to the sort of the, I suppose, the tone that, um, th- that the SU can take in terms of its internal politics. And it's probably worth an individual discussion as to whether that's the kind of, uh, the kind of politics of the SU that we want to be encouraging. I, I think you could definitely make, make the argument that several of these things warranted, at the very least, more discussion than they got as a result of being all lumped together. Sure, sure. And the way that we sort of heard um, the people most sort of centrally involved with the union talk about this referendum and the changes they wanted to make, there was a real sort of sense of urgency of like, this is kind of embarrassing to us, we just want to get this over done with. Do you think it's a fair reading that the fact that uh, a referendum was needed was more of a sort of uh, an inconvenience uh, for them to have to push through these changes that they so wanted? I think so. Um, I, I think that's evident in the way that it was talked about and that it was it was sort of pitched as just being a clean up of the Constitution. We're just correcting a few typos. We're just changing some things that sort of contradict each other. It's not a big deal. Um, and I think that was certainly true. Like there were places in which there were genuine just some typos and some, some sort of uh, incoherent sentences being changed. But I think that isn't true in the case of many of, of the changes that, that were made. And um, I, I think it was it was framed as being significantly simpler than it was, uh, and like you say, uh, I think there are a lot of, uh, sort of insiders of the union who would have preferred if this could have been done without a vote, and were um, perhaps uh, a little a little embarrassed. At, yeah, as you say, at the at the idea that this uh, this was even up for discussion. Sure, sure. So, Shannon, uh, I mentioned the numbers briefly there, uh, but not a high turnout anyway, around uh, 3% of the 18,000 electorate that could potentially have voted. Um, So do you want to take us through those numbers in a wee bit more detail and tell us how they sort of stack up compared to uh, previous referenda and elections within the union? definitely. So I suppose the important thing to think about here is, as Jack has just pointed out, you know, this was very much marketed and rushed to just, you know, we want to get this done and over with. We want this to just be cleaned up. So I think that perhaps the urgency does contribute to the only around 3% electorate. But we never have in SU elections ever, or referenda or sabbat elections, we never have 100% electorate turnout. That just doesn't happen. So previously we had around 3,000 in the UT referendum. And then, you know, when it comes to sabbatical elections, there's only 3,000 to 4,000 votes. So I suppose when you look at it that way, we'd say that there's just about over 600, 650 votes in this referendum that has just passed. And I think maybe Mm. it could be the fact that we're online. It could be the fact that it's not in person. But considering how it was marketed by the union to be this kind of cleaning up, just, you know, this fixing of typos, the changing of, you know, little bits, um, I think maybe just contributed to like a lack of a lack of engagement from the electorate because I don't think an awful lot of people 
really cared upon reading the email. They're like, oh, they're fixing typos. Why do we have to vote on this? So like, as Doug pointed out, probably many people in the council themselves being like, why do we need to have a vote on this if we're just fixing typos? But there was over 70 changes made to the constitution in this vote. So it was quite a substantial referendum because never we would never usually have 70 changes to the constitution in one referendum, as Jack pointed out. So when you yeah. like compare that to the 3000 UT referendum, which was obviously to the electorate seemed like a bigger deal because there was more going on around it, or like so bad elections when you have 3000 to 4000 voters and you know there's a whole campaign week around that, that doesn't make 70 changes to the constitution. So it is quite peculiar that only 3% of the electorate did show up for this, but there, there's loads of factors. It's the fact that we're online, it's the fact that there's just, there's loads of changes and I think maybe the way the SU marketed this uh, referendum in particular, it really contributed to um, to the fallout and only 3% of the electorate voting. Sure. So, Jack, um, I'm wondering just if you uh, would sort of agree with that uh, analysis there that really the problem here was in the messaging from the union around this. So fundamentally, yes, uh, but I also think there, there's probably some other things going on there. Like like Shannon just said, uh, that, that there was messaging that this was sort of a done deal and, uh, and that we were voting on it, but that was mostly just a formality that, of course, we would all agree that these were sensible changes that just needed to be made. There's probably also a more fundamental um, issue that, that no matter how you marketed this, I think these sort of procedural changes, even the ones that were arguably much larger procedural changes than just sort of cleanup of of, uh, of typos and contradictory elements of the constitution. No matter how you market it, those things aren't things that an average student thinks is that important or that relevant to the, to their life, which is 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 certainly understandable. I think it probably uh, I, I may be editorializing slightly here. I think it's probably true to say that uh, many inside the union are probably happy that it didn't end up being a, a sort of a, a point of contention that, that, that there wasn't significant discussion around this uh, that sort of low turnout was a, a decisive vote in favor was probably roughly what they were hoping for. but on the other hand, I think that that, that can probably raise some questions about the sort of uh, the, the the process, the legitimacy of doing something like this with, with, with such a small turnout, uh, making this huge number of changes to the union's constitution on the back of a very, very small vote. Uh, what, what kind of questions does that raise about how the SU sure. is run? Um, so everything that we've sort of talked about uh, so far uh, leads me to the conclusion that there wasn't really a debate here. There was no uh, substantive opposition to these changes. So Shannon, what are we to make of the 100 people who voted no then? Well, Finn, I think the 100 people who voted no, I think we can look at that from two perspectives. I think we can look at that from a perspective of loads of people, and there was a page set up online under the, the notion that, you know, the Constitution is fine, let's not fix it. And it was kind of made into a bit of a joke. So I think maybe we could come out from the stance that the 100 people that voted no, you know, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a joke. They wanted to see what happened if this didn't pass. They wanted to see, you know, what kind of... What, what the SU would do if this if this motion didn't pass. But then we can come at it from another angle and we can say that the 100 people that voted no, perhaps this does, you know, this does show a lack of, I don't want to say faith, but a lack of maybe engagement or a lack of decisiveness with the SU. So like 
engagement is low. We're all at home. We're all distance learning. You know, maybe there's a case of like people didn't understand what this referendum was about. They thought there was too many changes. Maybe the yes, you didn't provide enough information on it. Like the information on this was just a spreadsheet that was circulated to students. And a lot of students probably wouldn't have clicked that. And a lot of students that did click it would be like, oh, they're changing this and they're changing this. But I've heard nothing about this. So I suppose we could come at it from the point of view that, okay, maybe this these hundred people wanted to see, you know, as a joke, what would happen if not. But maybe we could come at it from an like engagement angle. But like maybe people aren't exactly agreeing with the SU rushing this referendum through. Maybe they thought there should be more discussion. Maybe they thought it should be split up more. Maybe it just shows a lack of engagement or a lack of a lack of really understanding what the SU is trying to do. Because if it sure. was, maybe a bit of a uh, an expression of frustration then with the student union. Yeah, exactly. An expression of frustration is the perfect way to phrase it. Perhaps they just they just don't know. Perhaps they want more from the SU than just what constitution changes at the minute. Maybe they need more support than just you know fixing typos and perhaps students were responding to that when they voted no all right thanks and that's all we've got time for today thank you very much for listening and we'll have another episode with you soon